All right. Josh Smith here at my studio, live from Flat 5. My guest today is a great friend and truly a, a huge influence on my playing since I was a kid. Um, I first heard him, I think, with John Mellencamp, and I saw him on Austin City Limits with Joe Ely, killing me with the Marshall and Reverb Tank. Oh, just made such a huge impression. And then I was lucky enough that when he started the band Storyville, with the guys from Double Trouble and with Malford Milligan and, and, and this great band, to get to meet him as a kid. And it was just always a, a huge impact on me, his playing live. It, it was a, a big thing for me. And the fact that we're friends now and have played together, it, it, little me would be freaking out. So, dude, just thank you so much for doing this. And I, I, it's an honor. You're a huge influence on me. Oh, thanks, Josh. It's, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome, man. So... Dude, for, for people who don't know your story, you know, and everybody knows you're in Austin, you're an Austin legend, but you're from Kentucky, right? And I'm curious that with everybody, do they have a musical family or not? Who puts the guitar in their hand for the first time? For me, it was just complete luck. You know, my dad bought this guitar for me, but there's no musicians in my immediate family other than my uncle who was out here in LA, so he wasn't around. So who knows how it happened? How did it happen for you? You know, I, my mom played piano by ear a little bit, but nothing to speak of. My grandfather had a drum set in, in the basement. Um, I kind of gravitated towards drums to begin with. And then I heard the Beatles and I was like, I heard Revolver. And then I, I just, it, it, all of a sudden it was like, man, I, the drums are cool, but I think guitar is cooler. And, uh, you know, uh, my mother died when I was 10 years old and my father was really, really, really supportive of me playing an instrument. And, um, then he re he remarried and I kind of let the guitar thing go a little bit, but my stepmother at the, my first stepmother, um, knew a guy in the neighborhood that played guitar and she sort of talked me into going over and taking lessons from this guy. And I was kind of maybe not even going to play, uh, keep keep going, but I went over and he got me going on you know the uh, Keith Richards and Hendrix, and then I hung with him for six months a year, and then he goes, man, I think you need to go take lessons with this other guy because you're 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 I can't teach you anymore, and it kind of that's just kind of where it happened, and I, you know, it wasn't like uh, anybody made me take Suzuki violin lessons or. The piano right. teacher didn't come over, man. I was just drawing. There was something about it that drew me in. And and where did the first, when did you get the first guitar? And how old were you then when you, you started going over to that guy's house in that neighborhood? So before, before that, uh, I could remember going to the mall in <laughs> Louisville uh, and taking lessons from a guy in the music store where you rented, I rented a K Electric and like my mom, you know, because my mom, basically friends of uh, my father, like wives of his friends would pick me up, take me to the mall to take car lessons. And I rented a K for 50 bucks or something like that and, and uh, had the Mel Bay book and, you know, yeah. made it. I was like, man, this is not, this isn't it. And somehow I convinced my father to get me a fender mustang and then i got oh, a wow. mustang yeah i wish i still had it 
comp competition uh red you know with the white racing stripes on yeah, it yeah the rate oh my god um so i i, I was like that I was 10 or 11, maybe 11 at that, at that point. And then, um, 13 or 14, when I started taking lessons with the, with the guy up in the third, up in the attic at, at the neighbor's house with the, he had a blue melody maker and a Brown Fender concert. Wow. And it was just like, man, the sound he made was, it was, it really drew me in. What's amazing is you can't forget what gear he even had. That's how obsessive we are about this stuff. And I, I think uh, it's interesting to me that you talk about the Suzuki schools and the schools in, in, in the malls and stuff. I think I came in at the tail end of that. The first place my dad took me for a lesson was whatever he found in the phone book, and it was called ASM Music School. And we went down. This has got to be 1985 because I was five years old, about to turn six, uh, something like that, 84, 85. And after one lesson, they were telling him that the cheap guitar that my parents had bought me was not good enough, and I had to spend $280 or something on a, a real acoustic guitar. And that was when my parents realized this was a scam, and they found me some jazz kid out of the back of the you know classifieds. But, yeah, those schools were really prevalent, really prevalent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. crazy. I, I know, and it's, it's so much of, uh, I think, our initial experiences with uh, – really shape whether we stay with it or not, you know? And I mean, oh, yeah. it, it, I think a lot of people probably get discouraged. They get with a teacher that's not empathetic or doesn't, isn't open to like trying to find the voice, like everyone's little voice where it's like cookie cutter, you'll do this, you'll do this, you'll do this. And then everybody does the same thing. And yeah. so I, I think we're both fortunate to have uh, stumbled into working with guys that weren't quite as rigid. So, so after the guy in the attic, you what progressed through a few different teachers. Um, when did when did like uh, playing with friends or garage bands or the first gig type scenario kind of come in to the picture? Pretty fast, really. I mean, um, the next guy that I took lessons from uh, was a, a blues guitar player, and like day one, he sent me home with three records. He said, "You can borrow them, but you need to go buy your own copy." And it was Magic Sam, Westside Soul, Butterfield Blues Band, and Live at the Regal. Oh, my God. Yeah, so it was like the tri, you know, like a trifecta right there. Yeah. So, like, I copped, you know, the, like, Sweet Home Chicago, the Magic Sam version of Sweet Home Chicago, and I would play along with Live at the Regal. And Bloomfield was harder for me to cop mm. right off, you know, I mean, like, off the bat. But, um it was not long after that, like I, then I became totally obsessed. I mean, like, and found some guys that were into that. And then, that, then it was the weird thing for me was is that I got into all that before I got into the Almond Brothers and uh, ZZ Top. You know, the bands. It's usually the other way around. You know, you hear yeah, yeah. almonds and well, where where did Stormy Money come from and all that? Uh, yeah, right, right, right. But. but uh, you know, I'd uh, copped some Hendrix stuff and, and, and uh, some Keith Richards stuff, but then it was like right into the blues thing. And I found some guys that were into that, and then they kind of got me into the Almond Brothers and everything, and it was it was cool to buy all that. But we would jam, you know, like 
one of the you know a couple of guys from high school had basements where their parents are their parents would let us play loud mm. and uh i can remember i was uh 15 or 16 and we had this paper in louisville called the bargain mart uh-huh. uh and you it was basically before the internet and it was like a free classified paper and i would go get it every it on wednesdays it came out or thursdays and i saw les paul guitar old uh, old les paul guitar gold les paul guitar and somehow convinced my father after he got off work to drive me across the bridge into indiana and uh look at this guitar and it was a 52 yeah. gold top okay and yeah. uh it was 275 and I talked him in loaning me the money and I got that guitar. And once I got that guitar, man, it was like, Oh, I'm now I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm all in. And yeah. then coinciding with the Almond brothers and everything else. And, and, and then I, you know, Freddie King, you know, the nineties and I'm like, Oh, you know, this is, yeah. this is cool. I just couldn't figure out how to play a mute, you know, with that weird bridge on there. Yeah. So yeah, that's a difficult I, guitar. Yeah. I took it down to the music store and, uh, I just said, can you put a tunematic? Can you put like a tunematic in a, in the guy? He goes, yeah, I can do that. And and once he drilled into it, he realized that the neck angle was wrong, and so he had to grind down the bottom of the tunematic, and he was mad at me. And I'm like, well, yeah, but it worked. I mean, you know. Wow. Wow, man. Yeah, that's. Uh, how'd you talk your dad into buying the guitar? I could never figure uh, that I one out. I thought I would pay him back, and he said, all right. Well, and and this was right after. Uh, yeah, I can remember I had a broken leg too. It's funny how you remember these things. I had a broken leg. My mother, you know, it wasn't long after my mother had died, I guess. Or maybe, I can't remember. Maybe if I was 14 or 15. Um, but he just loaned me the money. And, and the, the funny thing was, is we were in uh, Indiana and he said he didn't bring any money or a checkbook with him. And he talked, he just t- told the people, I promise I'll I'll mail, I'll, get, I'll mail you a check as soon as I get home. And they let us take the guitar. Wow. I, you know, I mean, it's like. Simpler times, right? <laughs> simpler times, yeah. Yeah, yeah, unbelievable. All right, so so then when's the first paying gig? And how did that feel like? Because I, I know that feeling was like, for me, it's it was no turning back. When someone put $20 in my pocket after a gig, you know, it changed it all. The really, I mean, the first paying gigs, I got in a band uh, in high school. I'm trying to think if that really was the first paying gig. I think it was. I got into a band in high school. Um, uh, I was the only white guy in the band, and we played mainly R&B stuff, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah. Uh, but then we would throw in like Grover Washington Jr. song, you know, Mr. Or, Magic, uh, yeah, hang, Mr. Magic or Hang Up Your Hang Ups, you know, we'd, yeah. uh, some Her- the Herbie stuff that we that I could digest, and you know, uh, we'd yeah. play like Breezin, and uh, but it was a lot of uh, uh, fun, you know, funkier stuff too, and we would play down at the University of Louisville. We played down there a few times and other places, but uh, and then we also played at a place in Louisville called Joe's Palm Room. Um, and it was really like super cool. It was just hard to fathom this quantum leap from the basement to like you're playing and, and like nobody's acting like you don't belong there. And they're right, actually right. Dig, digging it. And then they, you know, somebody hands you 25, 40 bucks at the end of the night. And then you got yeah. three cokes all night long too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
it's that years. feeling is is amazing like i remember playing a gig for 75 dollars and you know start i then it became a regular gig i'm 13 years old and i'm just stuffing an envelope in my drawer you know and so i could buy another guitar i mean that's that's all i cared about you know but it was it was like I, people will pay me to do this uh that's it i don't need to uh, can i quit school now and it was like no that's not allowed but and it was certainly on my mind immediately yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. was there was there any uh music in school for you at all like high school or no, or, no, there, was, no there was no um i mean i took i took lessons um while i was in school but not at school we you know i mean i know i have friends here that like had like vocal teachers and took vocal lessons you know voice lessons in uh in high school and and even guitar lessons but there was none we had didn't have any of that uh so then when you graduate from high school is it just all systems go full-time gigging musician uh no i went to uh indiana university because i was going to be a jazz major okay it, uh, they have a great school of music there i got in and uh actually before you know that summer i went to berkeley for five weeks oh really yeah i did and that changed my life that the first night i was there um i was 17 and i drove from kentucky to boston with a you know Rand mcnally atlas on the seat you know before, <laughs> right. before gps or anything yeah. drove myself no big deal 17 got a place to park my car for five wow. weeks Walked down the street and caught Larry Coriel at the jazz workshop. And then was there in the five weeks I was there. Let's see. I, I saw Pat Metheny five nights in a row and went over to his apartment and took a lesson from him. Wow. And upstairs that during that week was the Dixie Dregs. And uh, I was when I was I booked Pat after the show every night and I was uh, sitting downstairs talking to him and, and Steve Morse came up to say hello. They were buddies from Miami and, and just, this could be a long story, but I'm going to, in a nutshell, Steve showed Pat how to use his MXR digital delay to make a chorusing sound. Uh-huh. And I was also like, I was standing right there at the moment that Pat discovered the wide, chorusing thing and the next time i saw him it was just like holy shit i'm in this like in the middle of this beautiful thing yeah. but i was standing right there when that happened <laughs> and then another another week uh pat martino was there and his aunt blew up was was getting ready to blow up on the first night and i just went up to him on break said you need an amp and he goes man i sure could use one and i went i wrote back down to the dorm and got my music man amp and let him use it all week and he put me on the guest list for the whole week and then gave me a lesson Wow. I still have all the stuff he wrote out. Oh my so God. It was like five weeks of like, you know, all of a sudden I'm in, in downtown Boston. And, um, so I go, I go to Indiana and it's like, I'm not cut out for this. This is a classical, you know, one of the best classical programs in the world. And the jazz players were all like way more advanced than me. And it was, there were no other guitar players. So I did that. I did it for a year, made it through the year, and then met a bunch of guys that had graduated from the School of the Music, music just graduated, one of whom was Kenny Aronoff. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had a band that they were starting, and I joined that band and toured the Midwest with those guys and realized that I didn't, that I was learning a hell of a lot more about music doing that than in school. 
Yeah, the on-the-job training, you know, there's no replacement for that. No. And what kind of tunes were you playing? What was that? What was that band? What were the? What were the? What was the music? It was, uh, <laughs> you know, all right, keep in mind that we're playing in clubs where the usual fare is Ario Speedwagon and mm-hmm. uh, you know Journey and that kind of stuff, and we were playing uh, Weather Report, Steely Dan, like this Gino Vanelli. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, like some really cool harmonically some some cool stuff uh kind of convinced, convinced them to throw in an almond brothers tune at one point um but mm-hmm. we were playing all these midwest rock clubs and we were kind of a novelty that was sort of a fusiony you know, jazz rock i don't know whatever you call right. it yeah but we got away with it for a while oh yeah wow okay so then when do does the transition happen from you know school and playing gigs and just being a working man guitar player to to like doing you know sessions but mostly like to, to doing the sideman stuff that started to happen how did that door get opened i just i moved to austin i mean yeah. i was i when i was after i played in the band with kenny and those guys i hung around bloomington Lawn and i played in a house country a house band gig with a country band sam, sam collins and the hard times boys Mm-hmm. And we would do a house gig on the weekend, and then we played VFWs and stuff like that. And I would, uh-huh. I played in a couple other bands too that were like, you know, would do everything from like, I played in this one band that we would cover George Jones, and then we would cover a King Crimson tune, and then an <laughs> NRBQ tune, and then an Elvis Costello tune, you know. So it was kind of like I just didn't, I wasn't sure where I wanted to go, but then all of a sudden, like, you know. One day I realized I look at the records that are stacked up and it's Joe Ely and Lou Ann Barton and the fabulous Thunderbirds and the Leroy brothers. And I don't, I, I just, a friend of mine from Indiana had moved to Austin and she invited me to come down to check it out. And I, I, I did that. And it was like, I went to the Continental Club and heard the Cobras with, um, Benny Freeman and Derek O'Brien. And, uh, I went, you know, on Sunday night at Hutz Hamburgers, Angela Straley, and the, the, the T-Birds are all hanging out, and it's just like this, you walk up Congress Avenue, and there's some, there's just several dives, all with these great guitar players and everything, and I, I literally, fl- I, I flew home and packed my Honda Civic up with everything I could get into it, and drove back down there, and I've been here ever since. With no idea on what you would be doing? No idea, and she let me sleep on her floor for three weeks, and I went out and I got a job at a record store at the Highland Mall. And uh, it was a time in Austin where, first of all, it was like there was a third as many people here, but you could go sit in. People would let you sit in. And on Monday nights, they had this thing called the Austin All-Stars. And I um, would go down there and sit in. And within like three times that I played like one song, people knew who I was. And then uh-huh. I called, I called the guy at the local paper, um, the rookie move, r- r- rookie move, say, Hey, you know, anybody that needs a guitar player. And he goes, well, I don't know who you are and if you're any good, but I have a friend that is, her name's Lucinda Williams. If you're any good, you know, here's her phone number, give her a call. And two weeks later, I'm on the way to the New Orleans jazz and heritage vessel, uh, and when we're in the same hotel with Roy Orbison and Grandmaster Flash and uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, Richard Thompson, in Man, New Orleans, that's, 
That's that's just a being open to it and not having any like backup plan. And, nope. and when when you do that, it happens. You know. I just went for it, man. And yeah, it was cheap here. You know, I think I paid like one seventy five a month for my apartment. And right. So then, Lucinda she added another guitar player whose name is Derek O'Brien, who's in the house band at Antones. Right. So within four months. He gets me into the Lou Ann Barton band. Right. So that becomes a two guitar band. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm, I'm on the Antones. I'm, I work, I'm basically on, on the guest list or the payroll, whatever you want to call it. I could go right, any, right, right. every single night for free. And uh, we would play, I mean, we could play, you know, you know, Clitter would bring in all Every all the greats, that all mm -hmm. of them, and then the house band would back them up, and they the house band was you know incredible. They knew every tune, how to back up everybody, and these guys love coming down. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know you'd have Lou Ann open up a set for him, man. He'd slide us all two or three hundred bucks, and it was like that's my whole that's my whole month's rent. Yeah, you know, so it's like I made more money then playing in Austin than I do now. That was you know thirty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing but man what a what a like you know education you know of just being in that scene and playing every night i think that's that's the step i think you know i was lucky to catch the tail end of like you know even as a kid playing four or five nights a week playing four hours a night being forced to solo all the time because that that's just not there for people now they have all this knowledge that we don't have much quicker because it's easier to find it, but they don't get to apply it the way that we did, you know, and, and you even more than me, I, I caught the tail end. Yeah, but you caught enough of it. And I think the other thing is, is because it's all laid out there for you now, you don't develop your, your ear. I mean, like literally, I mean, not to sound like an old guy, but I mean, it was literally pick up the, the, the needle and keep, playing along with it and moving it back and forth, but I had to develop my ear. Nobody was sitting there on the screen showing me. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, a easy thing to fall into. Just get on YouTube. How do you play uh, whatever? And it's right yeah. there. Any, yeah. Anything. Um, but I've tried to impress upon people, and it, it was impressed upon me by Pat Metheny, you know, when I was, like, peppering him with all these questions, like, what, you know, what's the magic secret? How do you get so good? And finally, just look at me and just play gigs. Just play gigs, man. And that's, I kind of feel like one gig is worth about two and a half, three weeks of, of good practice at home. Yep, without you gotta question. you got to play gigs. You got even if it's like with your buddies in the basement, man, play with yeah. other people. Wow. Well, okay. So, so then you're, you're, you're in the scene. You're part of the, the Austin family, you know. When when do uh, when does you know the sideman stuff with Joe or with Mellencamp and that stuff start coming in? Who calls you for that? I'm assuming did Kenny call you or or, or who calls? You know. Well, the, the Ely was first, and right. um, I got that. That came through Roscoe Beck. Oh, okay, all right. I worked on a session. Actually, I came to L.A. to do a session with someone from uh, a woman from Austin named Lisa Rhodes. And I ended up on a session with uh, Rick Murata and uh, Roscoe. And I'm like, w w what am I? This is not even real. Um, 
but so anyway, Roscoe, that that's the first time we met. He didn't he didn't know me. He didn't get me on that session. Somebody else did. Okay. Um, but Roscoe recommended me to Joe Ely, and one day I'm like, you know, my usual sleep till noon, the phone rings before I'm awake, and it's Joe's brother asking me if I was available to go to Australia in a week with with Joe and his band. And I, I, you know, I think I'd met Joe hanging around Anton's late at night, but I was like in awe of him. And I, I was like, of course, of course, I, um, yes, I'm available. If I'm not, I'll become available. And right. I didn't have a passport and he had to, he had to drive, I had to get pictures and he had to drive to Houston and go to the consulate and get my passport made for me. It was back when getting a passport was more difficult. Right. Wow. So I just, uh, you know, we, we had a couple of rehearsals, played one gig in Austin, jumped on a plane, and I'm touring around Australia. And um, that was the beginning of about five and a half years of about uh, the beginning of five and a half of the best years of my life. And where I truly feel like that's when I became a, a player. Mm. And it was by, the, you know, 200 gigs a year work with a guy who was an artist in every sense of the word who uh-huh. taught me about dynamics and pacing and in the five and a half years never once did i not see him give 110 percent ever never not once not for one second did he slack off or if you know the most intense show we ever did that i can remember we played some rickety ass club in Germany with the PA that was falling apart. And there was about 10 people there and he leveled and he, he absolutely. And I'm like that right there is, that's the deal. That's the deal. Don't open up your case if you're not ready to bring it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Impression on me. Wow. how, How old were you when you started playing with Joe? What, what, when was that? I was probably 24. Okay. Uh, 25 maybe. Um, and he, he really let me, he, I mean, he, he made me, he was so generous, man. He, he, you know, long solos. He made me co-producer of the first record I did with him at 25 years old. And I'm like, this guy's like a special person. And he's, and I still, I, I feel that way even more. And I've I watched the decisions he made over the years and they were really based on what they were, they were true to him, himself as an artist and not, you know, making the most money. Um, there were several instances where I saw he had the opportunity to take like a, a certain turn to become the next Texas Springsteen or something like that. And he, and he right. was like, that's not me. I'm not, I, I'm not going to do that. And consequently today he has a very vibrant career that has evolved. Yeah. Well, he has a, he has an incredibly staunchly, you know, loyal fan base because of how, how honest everybody knows he is in his music without yeah. question. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Man, that must've been like going to Australia for the first time first time out of the country playing like it must have been amazing it was awesome it was unbelievable i mean we were opening up for a guy named jimmy barnes who was like yeah absolutely cold chisel 
called yeah. Chisel, and they were, I mean, it was like one of the biggest things in Australia. So we were playing arenas. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, back then, totally fearless. I was just totally fearless. I was like, throw anything at me and I'll, I'll relish it. Yeah. Anything except a really complicated chart. <laughs> you know, but gig wise, lot you know, playing gigs, it was like, God, this is it was all it was in, in Australia back then it was kinda like what I thought it what I bet it was like to be in Laurel Canyon in the sixties. You know, it was real like super laid back. You know, all the towns we played in were on the almost all of them were on the water. Mm-hmm. And so it was big beach surf culture and people were so friendly and it was, and I like the hotels we were staying in. We're like, Jimmy Barnes put us up in his hotels. And I was like, Shazam. Uh, <laughs> I can get used to this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the life of a, of a side man on good gigs. It, it, it is a nice thing, you know, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But I think you have oh, to do it both ways, man. You got it. You got to, you got to do your deal. I mean, I, in my, from that period, you know, when back in the stage tour, we, uh, we called it, you know, we, we were in a van pulling a trailer the whole time. Yeah. And, and uh, then I go with Mellencamp and I'm on a private jet staying at the Ritz Carlton. And, and then I get yep. in Storyville and I'm back in a van pulling a trailer. I mean, yep. it, it's about the music, man. It's not like how how nice your hotel is. I, I it, no. it really, I mean, I don't know. It, you got to stay humble. Yeah. Well, when, okay. So then, you know, you have this period of of sideman success with Mellencamp and all that um are are you writing all through then through that period or are you composing no not yet okay so when does when does that happen well i think it it really happened around story i i had written songs but you know i'm like i'm hanging out with lucinda williams and joe ely and jimmy dale gilmore and butch hancock and all their friends you know, Guy Clark, Rodney Crowell, all these people. Yeah. I'm like, great writers, really great like, writers. So, so I did develop a, uh, a not only appreciation of great songs, but a fear of <laughs> of making an ass out of myself. Um, if you can, you know, comparing myself to to what these what they were doing. And yeah. when I got in, when we started Storyville, it was like all of a sudden, I all right, this is I'm not just a side man. We need some songs, and um, I kind of got. I started paying attention to that more and putting mm-hmm. more energy into it. Yeah, and well, I, I mean, wrote. You ended, I still like. Yeah, man, you ended up writing a lot of great songs in that band, and then I mean, you know, does that open the floodgates? Because now you write all, you know, your material for your your records. Now, I mean, does it just kind of it opens up a new part of you, you know? Yeah, it really did, and. So after Storyville, I started going to Nashville to do all these sessions and um, right. kind of got really, really lucky. And I had a, a Blake Chancey, really great dude, great producer, was doing a lot of big records at the time and brought me up to do a John Anderson record. Okay, uh, yeah. And Paul Worley was co-producing it. And he was another guy that was really, he's still really active producing records up there. And it was like from that one record, both of those guys hired me, started hiring me for almost everything they did. And then, then the word gets around, oh, this new kid's in town. I got to have him. And then it runs the usual course, you know, 
Sure, Who's sure. David Grissom. I, give me David Grissom. Give me a young David Grissom. And then who's David Grissom? You know, I mean, it's like 10 yeah, years. Yeah. That's a 10-year arc of my Nashville thing, not living in town. Um, so concurrently with that, I was doing writing, and I met uh, Frank Liddell, who has a company called Carnival Music, and I signed a publishing deal with them and was doing lots of co-writing um, and wrote with some really great writers and got really more honed in on the craft of it and also the speed of the speed of, of as you know if you, sessions up there everything happens so fast Very writing fast. the same way you got to be able to deliver like boom on the spot but i wrote with a lot of great writers um and it was a really really great education in that regard um i wrote with chris stapleton when he first got to town and we wrote seven or eight songs together and i could tell you know i could it's i could tell the minute i met that guy this guy is is special mm. and uh look what happened you know yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> dude how, so, how often were you going to nashville was it every month a couple weeks or you know it was like when it was when it was like in high gear i was going a couple of times a month and that mm. was when it wouldn't be just like we're gonna go in and do two sessions and cut, you know, see see what floats. It was like come for three or four days and we're gonna do the whole record. Or come for three days, we'll do the first half, three days we'll do the second half. And so it was a really, really uh unusual situation that doesn't happen now. I mean when to fly someone in from out of town, the budgets were much bigger. There yeah. there still was people did still buy CDs and it was an entirely different climate. Um, but yeah, man, I was like, uh, but I had to get on the train fast. I had to get on the program with the program. The, the, I mean, literally the first, I can remember the, the John Anderson session, the first tune, um, they pass around the number charts, which I kind of knew how to read. Yeah. Um, and they listened to the song one, one time down and I'm making a couple of notes and thinking, and uh, I look up and everybody's gone. And I'm like, where'd they, and I look out, they're all out at their instruments. And I'm like, oh, I mean, so I realized like right then and there, it's like, yeah, you hear it one time, then you go make the record. Yep. I like two or three takes and you, that's the record. Yep. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, that I had to, I had to up my game. Oh, it's, it's so fast there, you know, um, and the number charts, you got to be like, you know, a lot of times this is a drummer writing the number chart and everybody gets the chart, which is crazy to me, you know. And uh, I remember the first time being in Nashville and writing the chart in six minor for a minor song and just totally fucking up so terribly. You know what I mean? Like, because yeah. it's yeah. such a brain fart. <laughs> it is. It, yeah. it is. But, I, you know, but as guitar players, the it's a godsend. Unless, oh, yeah. you know, there's a point at which the harmony gets too complex to where it's just crazy to try to write a number chart. But yeah. for 99% of rock, pop, well, not necessarily pop, rock, country, blues. Yeah. I'm kind of the melding of it all together. The number charts, I mean, because for me, I'm thinking two or three parts ahead the whole time. You know, Always. capo, yeah. a cap something, capo to baritone, whatever. I mean, and so it's there's no transposing yeah when did you stumble onto that way of thinking in the studio where you already had multiple parts because everybody has that moment where 
They see a chart, they learn a song, they play the chords. Isn't that what I'm supposed to do? And then you transition to, no, wait, I hear this part and I hear this part and I've got a job here, you know? Well, it's different every time. And if there are two guitar players on the session, that is a completely different thing too. And, and if there are a bunch of, if there, there sometimes there could be two keyboard players. Yeah, so sure. you know that you're probably, you might only play one pass or sometimes there's not an acoustic player on the session and you may have to track the song on acoustic and then go back and put all the electrics on after that. So, you know, I became conscious of it when I started working with, well, even with Joe Ely, he was, he was good about, you know, I started doing, you know, multiple parts on his record and really thinking about how do we make this, the each part stay, you know, have its own space sonically. Mm. And then I started getting really interested in the engineering aspect. Um, when I was at sessions, I would try to discreetly ask engineers, why are you using this mic or that compressor? Um, I would, I would watch how they were monitoring, you know, and, and listen to records from that perspective. Like, well, yeah. if the acoustics are hard panned, can you hard pan the electrics on top of them? Or so, I, you know, then I started thinking about the whole picture sonically you know, do I want two electrics off to the side and maybe acoustic just at one o'clock or what's it going to be? And it, and so then Mellencamp, it, you know, he developed, I developed that idea further with him and he, he was, he was really brilliant in the studio, taking this three chord folk songs and turning them into rock anthems. Mm. Uh, but when I got to Nashville, I really started thinking about, uh, all this layering, you know, layering guitars. And I think, you know, on a subliminal level, the first guy I really heard do that exceptionally well was Jimmy Page. Oh, oh and, yeah. You know, you go go back to his sessions even before Led Zeppelin, there was stuff that he did with Donovan and things where he would layer parts. Yep. But the, the Zeppelin stuff, if you if you really analyze it, man, the, the parts and the tones and the arrangements are, are brilliant. And... Yep. Then I really kind of got, I mean, another guy I really admire is John Leventhal. Oh, and man. his early stuff with Sean Colvin, I was still kind of in, you know, just getting going in Nashville. And uh, I really paid attention to what he was doing. I thought he was a master at layering parts. Um, but then it just, I kind of just got onto the, I got, um, I mean, it was amazing how many times they would want me to play baritone guitar because I had a way of playing baritone that worked in the context of that music. But it was all, you know, it, it was kind of like if you, if you look at the spectrum, if if you standard tune guitars right here in the middle, a capo guitar above it and a baritone, I could I was always trying to hear a part for that that thing, and then I would peel it back depending on whatever somebody else was playing, and it evolved, it evolved yeah. minute by minute, literally. Well, that's the way, I mean, it's got to be in the moment, you know, you yeah. can go in with a plan and a cookie cutter formula, but I mean, it only works if it works, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a team sport, you know, making yeah. doing sessions. It's, it's a team, it's a team effort. And how, man, so then how did the, the Dixie Chicks gig come along? Was it after you were already going to Nashville or no? It was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just got a call one day. I was in my studio I mean, I'd worked with Lloyd Maines, mm -hmm. Natalie's father, a lot over the years. And 
I'd worked in Emily uh, Robinson at the time, now Emily Strayer, her husband, Charlie Robinson. I'd played on a bunch of his records and knew him. And I think we're just looking for a new guitar player. And she, Emily showed Charlie the list and he said, well, just cross everybody else off to David and call him. And I was writing a song with somebody at my house. I can't remember who it was. My, I don't know. It doesn't matter. But they said, could you come over to the studio and talk to us? We're at Cedar Creek here in Austin. And uh, I went over and hung out with them. They said, would you, and after about 15 minutes, and they said, would you be open to being uh, MD, the band leader? And I said, well, yeah, I'll do that. And I never auditioned or anything. I was just, and, wow. and I got a call from the business manager saying, let's cut a deal. Let's, you know, and uh, it was a, a really, uh, it was a lot of fun. They're, they're amazing, amazing musicians um, and singer and, and uh, strong, you know, strong in every sense as musicians and singers, people and everything. It was, it was a really fun opportunity to work with them. Um, it is somewhat a, a, a funny you know, we did my first the first thing i ever did with them was saturday night live we did two songs on saturday night live and then we flew out the next morning to london mm-hmm. to, to rehearse for a few days and the, the 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 chicks the three women had never the, the first time they heard the band was when they walked into a rehearsal and i and i had helped rehearse we'd all re- helped each other but we'd rehearsed everything and kind of rocked it up a little bit and luckily they liked it and we had like two rehearsals and then the first show was at the shepherd's bush which was the infamous uh the very first gig that's the george bush comment that was a george bush comment which yeah. now it's like seems so innocuous i mean compared to what people say now it's like you, it really does yeah, it was it's... so harmless um yeah. but things changed it started to really change after that yeah yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. I didn't realize that was the first real gig after well, Saturday Night Live with you. Wow. All right. The other thing I learned on that gig was uh, it was the first time, I, you know, having played thousands of gigs at that point in my life, I went through the entire gig where nobody in the audience ever looked at me or made any eye contact <laughs> with me or anybody in the band. It was like all eyes were on the three girls. I mean, there was, yeah. I was like, this is different. This is going to be different. I mean, it had nothing to do with us. Yeah, yeah. It is, you know, that's something I've, I I learned when I moved to L.A. and I started doing some of the tours that I was doing. Like, oh, wait a minute. They don't even need to see us. It was like, we could be behind a screen, you know. It, yeah. it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Thank God the, ba- the, the artist actually wants a real band because they don't need one. I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. Oh, man. Well, dude, so now you've transitioned, like, you know, to fully being doing, you you still do a lot of sessions, obviously, but now you do so much of your own thing commercially. You know, you put out records, and when the world is normal, you go overseas and you play gigs. Um, You know, was that 100% uh, natural, or was it a, a concerted effort to get more into doing your own thing? Uh, I just think it was a natural progression, really. Um, it, it had a lot to do with songwriting, because what I found was with the publishing deal in Nashville is that I was writing a lot of really good songs. And we had got some songs cut by, you know, Trisha Yearwood and 
uh, Leanne Womack and Montgomery Gentry, John May all cut What Passes for Love before Storyville played it. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I was getting these songs, some songs cut, but they really weren't songs I would put on my record. And I got a little burned out. Um, and the session thing kind of came, kind of started to trickle down a little bit. And I, I just, I started writing songs, more songs that, that when I left the, when I got a publishing deal was over, I'd started writing songs that I wanted to put on my records. And so I was yeah. like, well, let's make a record then. And, you know, I hadn't made a record. And so, uh, yeah. I did, I literally got my first computer and started recording. So I learned, I had to learn the computer and the software at the same time. And I, and you know, I just made record. Yeah. <laughs> I just figured out how to, how to do it. You know, call somebody, Hey man, how do you get it to, I can't get, you know, you know, they, you just repair the permissions and you'll be fine, you know, or reboot. <laughs> I was like, computers have come so far now, you don't, we, yeah. Or the latency's not even, you know, we had all these things we were dealing with back then, but mm. I just started making records and um, felt really, I felt empowered doing it on my own. Um, having seen all the people that I worked with go through these art, you know, these battles with record companies. And I could, I was free to, you know, I felt like I had, the, you know, I was a bit of a split personality as a guitar player and then a songwriter. And, um, I could just put out the records I wanted to put out and it was appealing to me. You know, I put four or five instrumentals and then four or five songs that might be considered today Americana or, or you know, maybe there's a blues in there somewhere, but um, it, it was a situation where as a, a record company would have a hard time figuring out what label do we put on this guy. Sure. And, sure. Um, but, but I, but I liked it. And, and, uh, it's just, I just been, I, I just keep doing it. And it's, it's just part of the, the whole thing. I feel like the more gigs I play, the more I can bring to sessions, the more songs I write, the more I can bring to, uh, again, sessions for other people. I mean, it's all connected. It's part of Absolutely, the big picture. Yeah. yeah. It's all, you know, you're, it's a big, you know, gumbo of how, you know, the things you enjoy, the things you want to do, the things that make a living, you know, and, and it all becomes, you know, serving the same goal, which is just, just because you love it and doing it as best you can, you know? Yeah. But, but man, that feeling must be, you know, when you start to release your own record and people buy it and people care and you start doing that, that feeling is there's nothing like that feeling that anybody cares about my shit. You know, as I can't, that's such a great feeling. Yeah. And also, um, playing with your band live, yeah. your tunes with guys that know your tunes mm -hmm. or an audience that knows what to expect, at least knows the ballpark of what to expect, but is willing to go with you anywhere, which is a very common thing here in Austin. Mm -hmm. uh, audiences are real open to that. I don't, I, I have not enjoyed playing live more in any environment than I, than I have on the Tuesday nights down at the Saxon. I mean, yeah. not every single night, but by and large, most of them are, 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 are just a blast. And you've, you've come down and played with us yeah. twice. Yeah. You're the only yeah. guy <laughs> that's played the whole night with us. Yeah. Uh, so that's, but that was all, that, those, those were good times. Oh, yeah. dude, I had a, I had a blast, but yeah, that, that feeling of, you know, doing what you really want to do. So being fulfilled in that way, 
and someone actually cares about it, what's there's nothing better than that. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Amazing, man. All right, let's let's get into my uh, my ten questions. <laughs> Stump days. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, number one, when when you started learning and playing, what was the first thing that when you got it under your fingers, you were so proud and it like it set the hook. Like I can't believe I just got this. This is the coolest thing ever. I'll okay. never do anything else. <laughs> um. Well, there would be two things maybe I would think of. The very first song that my second teacher taught me, it might have been Hey Joe, but I think it was Sympathy for the Devil. And it was, oh. the, version off, it was the version off Get Your Yaya's Out. So, you know, uh, I'm playing for this little five-watt Gibson thing. Yeah. When I could play that, it was like, Oh my gosh, I'm making music. Yeah. And then, you know, I kind of learned, you know, Keith Richards. You know, that simple yeah. uh, solo thing. Uh, so that was kind of like, that, that, that was like, all right, that's super cool. And then not long after that, um, I got Hendrix in the West. Oh, and a, yes. And a wah-wah pedal. Yeah. And I actually got Voodoo Child down pretty good. Uh, off version, you know, uh, at least the, the, the intro and the, in the, not, not the, all the soloing, but uh. that was like, oh man, you uh. know, wow. Yeah. Like you could do this. Like this is the, that feeling when you, you've listened to something 8 million times and then all of a sudden it comes out. It's like, yeah. oh my God, I did it. Yeah. Uh, uh. yeah. There's no turning back when that happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, so maybe this is, maybe you answered this question, but what was the first actual solo that you remember laboring over and learning note for note? Oh God! You know, I don't know if I could still play it, but so, probably something off of Live at the Regal. Uh, okay. Or, or you know, back at uh, the the Magic Sam Sweet Home, you know. You know. Oh yeah. When I learned all that, which you know, you know, you know, when I learned the magic, I could play along with Sweet Up Chicago, the Magic Sam version. That was really, uh, a, that was a really cool thing. Um, I kind of got the first, uh, and, and a lot of stuff happened at the same time when I started. My ear got to the point where I could learn solos, and it would be. Mm -hmm. Um, like One Way Out, the Allman Brothers version, oh, yeah. uh, I, yeah, both yeah. Those, the Dickie Betts solo on that, because I really wasn't a good slide player. I still not. Yeah. But Me I think Dickie Betts solo on One Way Out, I copped that note for note. Uh, oh, yeah. Statesboro Blues, his solo, huge yeah. for me. Uh, yeah. I remember I remember learning uh, as a kid, one of the ones that, that completely I thought I, I've arrived was the the ending lick of the intro of revival when they play you know it was like i can't believe i figured that out you know? yeah. 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 yeah yeah and uh, the first two roy buchanan records man i tried to cop oh. as much stuff as i could off and in in the pedal steel stuff started there and then i got the uh 
into the sweet little Lisa solo the day on the Dave Edmonds record where yeah, Albert yeah. Lee is using a pulse, a B bender, and I didn't know it. Yeah. But yeah. I was learning in a... You know, bending up with my first finger, which is what a B bender would do. Yeah. But I learned that solo. It took me about a year. Wow. Man, I hear Roy Buchanan a lot and you're playing and it's funny, you know, you wouldn't maybe think it from an outsider when they think David Grissom, Roy Buchanan, but the bends, man, the way you melodically bend and hold on to stuff, you know, he was huge for me too in, in that regard. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. The first two records, man, and the tone, the tally into the Vibralux. Yeah. You know, I searched for that tone for a long yeah. time. It was giant. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. All right. What's what's the first thing you play when you pick up a guitar? Yeah, do, do your hands just go somewhere naturally? Uh probably they go to uh my hillbilly G chord. I it, you know, I'm an open string junkie. Yeah. And I guess G, I'm so lazy that it just happens my hand seems to fit there the easiest and so I mean like I I think my wife is, just hates the key of G. Uh, I, <laughs> you know, I'm in the house to pick up a guitar, and I'm always playing something right there to start. Well, I, I knew before I even asked you that question that was what it was going to be, that it was going to be G. Yeah. I mean, that that's, that that's the first thing I think of when I think of David Grissom. You know, it's like you, you have such a unique voice. You know, and that's that's part of that open string thing. You know, it's 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 unbelievable. I know when I hear two notes that I'm hearing you. That's cool. Yeah. Oh man. Well, that 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 leads to this question: When did you find that? When did you feel like a wall got knocked down or something, or a light bulb went off, and you started to find your voice? Was it just like an accident? Was it? Did somebody point out to you like, hey, that's really cool. You should do more of that. Uh, did something point you in this way of like, I should go this way. This sounds like me. I like this, you know? Um, I think it was more a question of somebody not telling me oh. something. I did, we, we, the, the culture of what's not cool didn't exist. You know, the internet okay. police weren't out there. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, you know, in Ely, back to Joe Ely, he really, you know, what I got in his band was the same time I got a guy here term, taught me about Vinge Marshalls, and I got a 50-watt Marshall. Mm. Uh, I got a high-watt first, and it got stolen. I got a 50-watt Marshall, and I got my first PRS. Mm. And so, but then I was playing in Ely's band, and, and, and I was sort of really influenced by Lloyd Maine's pedal steel playing, mm. who was in the band before me. And so I sort of had this beyond a telly, like a telly on steroids tone and dragging the, the, the um, pedal steel licks, you know, play, through that tone. And then at the same time, you know, the thing about the first two Roy Buchanan's record, Buchanan records that really is key. And I think um, is the way he would irreverently mash styles together, you mm -hmm. know, you could hear like he could play Western swing like nobody's business. He could chicken pick like 
crazy. And then he could rip your heart out playing Sweet Dreams, you know, mm -hmm. the, yep. the instrumental version of that. Uh, so I felt like, you know, the, the bluegrass stuff that I was listening, that I listened to in high school, Norman Blake, all those open strings, that, that's a big part of it. Um, sort of the milking the note thing of Albert King and the expression of BB and um, the melodicism of, you know, even somebody like Joni Mitchell or Pat Metheny on Bright Size Life or mm -hmm. the way Mike Brecker phrased, you know, yeah. I couldn't yeah. play the har harmonically. I couldn't be in his ball game, but you know, the phrasing of it all, um, all those things just kind of, came together in, in an organic way. It wasn't like I set out to have my own sound. I didn't know any better uh -huh. back then. But You certainly arrived on your own sound. I mean, it's like I said, every, everybody knows when it's you instantly. And, you know, it, it's always interesting to me how people get there. Obviously, they take all these influence together. But does it register or not while it's happening? And some people it does. Some it just it just happens so naturally you almost don't even know it you just arrive there anyways you know yeah yeah that's amazing it's a good thing i don't i don't it's one of those things i don't try not to think about too much or if, if i had thought about it too much when it was happening it may not have happened and can i just say that when i saw you at the marshall and the reverb tank i thought that was the coolest thing ever like i wanted to copy that rig so badly you know it's hard to beat man yeah. It's so hard to beat. I mean, I I did a couple of little clips. I got I've still got everything, you know. And uh, yeah, like now I'm playing through this eight inch speaker so that we can converse. Yeah. But yeah. man, when I when I can really like, I've got a, a hundred watt uh, plexi PA head, which I love because they're the lower gain. You know, you just yeah. turn it all the way up yeah. in in the, the reverb tank into it. Oh. oh man, nothing like it. Yeah, amazing, amazing. All right, what um. What key or style, song, whatever, it's probably G, but what, what do you hear in your head? Like, do you, do you have a narration that happens just randomly? I, I'm hearing a shuffle basically 24 hours a day, and I'm hearing B-flat, you know, it never ends, 24 hours a day. Really? Do, do you have stuff like that that comes and goes in your head all the time? I have, music comes and goes all day long and I, it, it's not the same music though. Um, it really varies. In fact, like when I go see a movie, I barely remember the movie because the visual experience of the movie sets off this stuff in my head. Music, uh -huh. it, it makes music, it fires music. And yeah. uh, so I think uh, it's definitely, uh, it, 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 it's always there, but it's not the same thing all the time. Hmm. Um, okay. But I know I understand where you're coming from. Where I, I, I get that, and I hear that in your playing, and that's why you are possibly one of the kings of the shuffle at the moment. Uh, <laughs> Man, there's just something about that groove that I can't let. I'll be laying down to go to bed, and it's like I have to finish that solo before I can turn off and get to sleep yeah well it's it could be a lot worse <laughs> i guess so yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right uh number six what's your biggest weakness on the guitar uh okay i would put it i'm going to put it in the context of my world mm -hmm. 
because because I'm not a legit I can't play I mean I'm a terrible jazz player but that's not really my world so in my world of sessions and live gigs I would say I'm a very 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 average slide player and I'm a terrible reader okay of notation so that that is normally not a problem like I can usually fake my way through the slide stuff and then also in certain finger picking styles I'm not yeah. great uh, that's you, dude that that's mine right there especially acoustic, acoustic finger picking yeah because yeah. when you when you do sessions man you're the day the day comes more often than you want where you are called upon to be, play a ballad with a yeah. singer by yourself for the entire first verse and there's yeah. nothing else there it's all you and it has to be perfect and oh yeah it, you're under a microscope and you're being compressed and it's clear as day and yeah. And everybody's yeah. looking at you. Yep. Right. You know, and if and so that that that's why there are specialists, uh, you know, guys that do sessions all day long for years and years and years don't really have a hole in their arsenal. But um, I got hired because I did have something a little different, but I mm -hmm. understood the music and could fit into the system. Um, but ultimately, I am not the guy for everything, and I've been yeah. the first to admit that. Which is is it bums. I'm I'm like you in that regard. It bums me out sometimes because it means I don't get the call. But it it also means that the calls I do get are more gratifying because they really wanted me. Absolutely, totally, totally. You know, and when I was getting flown up, that was like, yeah, you're flying me up, be me, and and I got really good advice from someone really. Because I was like nervous the, the first couple times, and he said, "Man, you cannot go up there and try to play like somebody else. You have to do your thing. It's the only way." And what he was talking about, which I think is really good advice for anybody, is playing with conviction and commitment. Mm -hmm. And if you start second guessing, well, maybe it would be maybe I need some more Brent Mason, or this is too uh, rock. You're not going to play with authority. And what he was saying was, you got to go up there and do your thing and and own it. And yep. it was great advice. Yeah, that is great advice. Yeah, absolutely. Oh man, I knew you were going to say reading, though. I knew you were going to say that. slide is a is a big weakness for me too, though. I kind of just gave up though because I grew up with Derek Trucks, and the second I stood on stage next to him, it was like, yeah, I don't need to do that at all, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's the um, ultimate uh, yeah. <laughs> reason not to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, all right. Who? Who's a big influence on your playing that people would be really surprised to hear? Um, I would, uh, let's see. Probably, I would go back to people I mentioned earlier. Well, I would, I would say Pat Metheny, yeah. the, the, the melodic approach, especially on the first couple of records. And so Pat and Jocko both. Jocko's way of phrasing and, and, and you know that way he would play that funky stuff is really i mean that really inspired me you know the 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 percussive syncopated totally pocketed thing along with pat's real melodic thing yeah, i mean yeah. i don't play that kind of music but i listen to it a lot and yeah. i like you know when i did the took a lesson from pat all he just kept saying play melody play melody just play more melody man he kept saying it over and over again, play melody. And so that, that, 
that has stuck with me and you wouldn't know it all the time. Sometimes I just play really rhythmic solos that are really the notes are kind of, it's like, I almost, almost treat the, see the guitar sometimes as a percussion instrument. Yeah, sure. And that's where some of those open strings and muted things come in where it's, it's a, and maybe that's, you know, kind of back to that Michael Brecker, uh, Jocko phrasing thing that sort of seems to, I always, I used to hear like bebop in my head all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I could sing solos, but I couldn't play them. Yeah. Yeah, but the rhythmic part of it starts to seep in, you know, even if you can't play it harmonically. Uh, it does, and that's like, you know, if I'm like in B. You know, yeah. it's as much the rhythmic element of that as it is the, the notes. And so, yeah, well, you, you've really tied together your internal clock to your hands in a really useful way where you can subdivide you know you're because you're hearing that all the time and you you that stuff comes out in your improv and you know that's it's not as easy as it sounds it's like that's that's a lot of work to do that yeah it is a lot of work (laughs) you know but it's it doesn't feel like work if you're enjoying it and so i mean i always try to make practice enjoyable but uh, there are times when you just have to buckle down and absolutely yeah. yeah yeah but if it is it could be hard but as long as you enjoy it you'll grow and you'll keep coming back it's when you get discouraged that's why i tell younger guys all the time they're stuck and i can't do this and it's like well dude you're are you practicing like with a smile on your face like just take a fucking breath and pra- it's like it doesn't matter how hard it is but if it's something you don't even like you're not going to succeed you got to like it you got to enjoy it Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Number eight. Would you rather have a great guitar and a shitty amp or vice versa? A crappy guitar and a great amp on a gig? Uh, great guitar and a shitty amp. Okay. We're opposite on this one. I can make, I can make almost any amp sound good, but if, if it's, I'd rather have a good instrument in my hand that I can get around on. And then deal with the amp later. And if I have, yeah, I can, I can. That, I mean, I, yeah. Interesting. We're we're opposite on this, and it's been split fifty-fifty. Everybody's answers, totally split down down the middle. But I know for me personally, if I have this guitar and some terrible crate. The show will not be as good as if I have any guitar, even with light strings, which is kryptonite for me, but I have my rig. It would be better off for the audience that way than yeah. the other way around. Yeah. Well, I could, I mean, I could make a, you know, it could be, you know, you know, a, a Roland jazz chorus might, I might, my first tour with Ely in Ireland, I got yeah. a Roland jazz chorus and that was one of the more challenging things I've ever done. Did you even uh, bring it? Cause I mean, you're used to Marshall. So what, did you even have that many pedals with you? But you know, I, that was when I was using a TT Electronics booster and a yes. Boston Digital Delay. That was that. So that's going to do nothing on a JC120. It will. It will not. No. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even really even know how to use an overdrive pedal. I was just using the boost part of it, you know. And yes. I was getting some overdrive out of the amp. 
Yeah. And then hitting the front end harder. So what did you do with the JC? What did you Because turning that up is not pleasant. I don't know. <laughs> I, I stood at the front of the stage and act like I'm in it. And, you know, <laughs> the crowd doesn't know. The crowd doesn't know. They don't, they really don't know. And yeah, I think sometimes it's interesting. Uh, I found this to be a, 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 to be true several times doing shows where I thought, God, my tone sucked. I didn't play well. But, you know, I was trying, I was trying my best that I think the audience picks up on that element mm -hmm. of not giving up that, you know, the human struggle, if you will, I mean, what, whatever that, and, uh, you know, people come up to me after gigs on some of those gigs and say, that's like the best I've ever heard you play. And it was the, it was the tenacity and the, you know, I'm not going to quit. Yeah. I think that they subconsciously, they identify with. Interesting, man. Interesting. All right. See, you're a better man than me. I, I you know, you, it, it's a choice not to let that stuff get to you. If you get stuck with a JC120 or something and make the gig still be a success for the audience. Yeah. Yeah. The only times I've actually had like major meltdowns. I mean, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I, you know, there's been a few times I'm not happy about that when I lose my patience with things, but you probably know what I'm talking about. There are certain gigs in Europe where uh -huh. if you're like over 90 dB, <laughs> You, you know, you get like, you get, you really, it's really like a, an affront to, to, to certain people. And it's very, that's what's hard. I'd rather have the worst guitar and the worst amp and be able to at least turn up a little bit than, than a best guitar and the best amp and have to turn the master volume down to one. Yeah. And still think I'm too loud or actually get to the point where I have to play differently. Cause yeah, I play really hard. Yeah. And, you know, if me and, uh, and I, I guarantee you, you know, and I know you play hard too. And mm -hmm. if you hand our rig guitars with our rigs to the, the, some other, a lot of other players, it isn't going to sound, first of all, it won't sound the same because we all, our hands all do different it, things. It is all. weird when someone picks up my guitar, some of it's a strings and my rig, it sounds like they have no gain and there's no brightness. It's all dark because they just don't hit it. Like we they hit it. They don't hit it. And so conversely, I, I remember when I first moved to town and uh, met Eric and he offered to check out my 50 watt Marshall. I went down to where he was, where he kept all his gear. And I remember mm -hmm. playing through, he goes, he, he, he played through the, the Marshall and I could tell, he goes, yeah, it's a little, little bright for me. And he, and uh, I don't know he said, do you want to play, play into my rig or whatever? And I can remember playing his rig and it was like the worst tone known to man because <laughs> He has a really light touch and knows how to yeah. make it makes it work for him. And I was like, yeah. the echo plexes were, you know, freaking out. But I've well, actually you, had sound men to ask me, can you play soft? Can you can you play softer? And I mean, like I said, the amps turned way down. I mean, it's like almost off. And they're like, no, can you just not hit it so hard? And I'm like, well, no, I can't do that. Can't do that. No, that's not. I, no, I I wonder. I mean, you've spent time with Robin. Um, I plugged in, I'll, I'll go ahead and say this out loud because he doesn't even know it, but once his Dumble was left somewhere where I had access to it, and I plugged in because I couldn't help myself, you know, he wasn't there, and I played the Dumble, and I couldn't get the Robin sound out of it. And it was like, this is all bright, and I just can't make it happen. And I wondered, does he play softer than I do or something like that? 
Did you ever plug into his amp? I did. I did. I played on that Mystic Mile record, right, you know, the yeah. Blue Line. And I remember um, one of the first things I did was go. He and I, I think he asked me to say, "Yeah, check out my rig," because I was. Um, I think I had to rent amps. It was at Sound City. Okay. Uh, yeah. Or that's what that, that's the place that's closed, right? That girl bought or the, yeah, the, yeah, that's Sound City. Yeah. That's what it, where it was, and um, I remember plugging into his rig, and it sounded just like me. It didn't sound anything like. Him, it sounded just like me. I was like, "Can I use your amp?" And like, no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a lot better than this rental stuff over here in the corner. But yeah, well, I remember amazing. it sounded really good. Nice, nice. All right, uh, number nine. What keeps you uh, motivated, man? What keeps you pushing forward to be a better musician and guitar player tomorrow than today? What do, What are you working on? Um. Well, I think if I don't play, I have to start. I feel like I I lose some sort of spiritual. There's something about music that is that I connect with something that's bigger than me. Yeah. So I don't play at my own risk. And If I go a couple of days without playing, I can feel everything just kind of get a little squirrely. I get a little weird. And so in this environment, I'm trying to just keep my chops up. Um, as you know, not playing gigs, that's a whole nother set of chops. And so, yeah. I, you know, I kind of, I'm trying not to worry about that too much. I'm just trying to, you know, try to stand up and play a little bit and dig in. Not much, but at least a little bit. Um, I always work on my time. I work, I work with a metronome. I try to go through uh, stuff that'll keep me in shape for sessions. Um, I, I'm in a period right now, to be frankly, of, of I'm, I'm kind of in limbo with this whole quarantine thing. And I've vacillated, I've, I've gone through stages of the first three months, I was busier than I've ever been at my home studio. So then it slowed way down. And then I started getting really depressed that we're not going to play any more gigs for, it's going to be a year and I'm not going to go to Europe next summer and everything. And now I'm kind of coming around the corner on it where it's like, I'm just allowing myself some space to just feel whatever I feel. But I really feel like the next step is going to be, I'm going to write some songs I'm going to get some new shit together. I'm going to, I'm going to, and, and the way I've always um, come up on new things is I play my way into it. Mm. And so that involves just sitting with the guitar and playing. And I know it goes against the cardinal law of a lot of people's practice routines and what people teach you about practicing. But for me, it's just always been about playing music. Now, if I find something I'm stumbling on or I want to work on, I'll work on it for a long time. But that might lead me into something that becomes idiomatic or part of my sound. I mean, everything yeah, I've yeah. come upon has been just that way of practicing. And so I'm trying to continue to do that. I'm trying to play acoustic and electric, um, check out some new music, not get caught up in social media too much, um, not, you know, the comparison thing on Instagram. I mean, you know, everybody posts their 60-second highlight yeah. reel, and it's like, you know, it's a that's comparison i think is the enemy of creativity so i'm just trying to i'm trying to keep my chops together but also be open to where, where's the silver lining in this environment and lead and find maybe i'll find something new and uh i actually been 
you know, I've been playing with a few pedals and like, you know, just anything, a different sound or whatever. And I'm kind of getting these little glimpses out of the corner of my eye of like new stuff. Well, that's cool. Just new stuff somewhere yeah. out there. Well, that's good. That's a good attitude to have, man. And what's crazy, what you, you said just passed by quickly, but trying to stand up and play. Dude, I've stood up and played twice in six months. And it's like, yeah, you feel like an alien to even put your strap on. It's like that. That is a weird. It's very weird. I had some. I had somebody ask me that uh, when I was, you know, thirty years ago. When you practice, do you ever you practice standing up? And I said, No, I never do that. And he goes, Well, when you play gigs, do you sit down? And I go, No, I stand up. Well, you know, your hands at a completely different angle. Both yeah. hands lay on yeah. the guitar differently. So it's I, at this point in my life, it's really not that hard for me to make the transition. Mm-hmm. I find I play different when I stand up. A hundred percent. In sessions when I play solos, if I if I if I really need if nobody stands up in the studio anymore, man. And so no. it's like it's I'm real self conscious about it. But if I've if I've done two, a couple of passes and it's not going anywhere, I stand up, man. And uh, and it inevitably becomes better. It's just an <laughs> attitude thing, you know. It's yeah. like a shift. Like I'm I'm not messing around. Yeah, yeah. Well, t- to me, standing up is associated with a gig, which it just is. puts me in a different headspace. Yeah. yeah, yeah, cool, man. All right. Uh, number ten, where do you want to be, man, in five years? Is it further down your path of you know solo records and doing more gigs under your own name, or is it just kind of keep on keeping on a little bit of this, a little bit of that? Do you have a five-year goal? No. Okay. I don't have a specific five-year goal. Um, I want to just, I would feel very blessed and grateful to continue to do what I'm doing right now, which in itself, I feel like, you know, knock out this last month of quarantine in itself involves moving forward. And I enjoy, I, I enjoy the, I like, love to do sessions. I love to play on rec- records. I love being in a room with musicians and making records, you know, not belabor it, you know, really knock it out with a bunch of great players. I love playing gigs and I love writing songs and I wouldn't want any of those to go away. So I just, I mean, obviously I'd like to get better at all three of those things and do and can just, to be able to continue to do this is such a gift. Yes. And I, uh, man, I'm, I'm very, very grateful, you know, and that's, so I just, I, I my five-year plan is to try to stay grateful. <laughs> that's a good one, man. That's a good five-year plan. You know, I, I can definitely appreciate it. I wish I, I, I should take more of that headspace myself. Um, well that dude, that was the 10 questions. Uh, so thank you. And then for members, uh, please can watch. There's going to be an extra video. If you're not a member, hit join right here and become one. But, dude, uh, I can't thank you enough for this. The fact that we're bros now and I can pick your brain or even just have a conversation with you is mind-blowing to me. You're an incredible inspiration to me. You always have been. And thank you for taking time out of your day to do this, man. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Josh, and I and I, you know, I want to say uh, the same back to you. I remember meeting you at that Storyville gig, yeah. and uh, it's it's so cool to uh, 
you know, we, I think the first time we met again was at the Canyon club when I was playing with Robin out there. Right. Yeah. But I, you know, I had seen you on, and I'm, I'm like thinking on YouTube doing some stuff. I'm like, that's that guy. I think that I remember yeah. meeting. And so, you know, you're playing your ass off, man. And Thanks, uh, man. inspiring a lot of people and, uh, you know, admire, admire everything. Uh, you, you're being a great player, having a great work ethic and, and really being generous with your talent. So thank, thanks for having me. Thank you, David. And we'll have links to all things David Grissom in the bottom of this video. So make sure you buy music and support him. And for members, we'll be right back. Thank you, everybody.